Welcome, and thanks for joining us for the Pivot Towards Promising Futures podcast, a new audio series brought to you by Futures Without Violence. In these short podcasts, we will be speaking with leaders in the work to end violence against children and in their families. In particular, we explore the myriad ways that systems can be transformed to provide community support to adult and child survivors rather than relying on a putative response. We prioritize guidance that advances equity and removes barriers to the best possible outcomes for the most marginalized. We see this as a crucial pivot away from the harms caused by institutions and systems and towards supports that center survivors and their families and communities. Our aim is to generate a national discussion about how we can transform our mindset and our practices to holistically improve child and family safety. We hope you will use these shorts to engage in discussions in your organizations. I'm your host, Surubi Kukay. Let's dive in. Welcome, Margaret. I'm so glad to be talking with you today. So I want to begin by inviting you to introduce yourself, especially for folks who are listening in who have never had the privilege of meeting you or learning from you. Tell us who you are, where you're based, what you, yeah, what inspires you. Um, It is so lovely to be here with you, sir. I really appreciate you wanting to talk. Yeah, so I'm Margaret Hobart, and I've been a domestic violence advocate in some form since the mid-80s when I worked at a shelter initially and did that for quite a while in Los Angeles. And then I moved to Seattle and um, have worked in a variety of domestic violence programs in a variety of roles. But I also went to graduate school in political science to try to become a better thinker about policy and power and how institutions affect the way we live our lives because of everything that I was seeing um, working with survivors of domestic violence and the difficulty that they had having their experiences validated Mm -hmm. and having institutions respond to them in ways that were compassionate and consistent with their actual lived reality. So that was kind of a a driving question for me. And I endured graduate school and I got my, (laughs) (laughs) and, um, but I I started working at the Washington state coalition, um, initially as the director of our domestic violence fatality review project here in Mm -hmm. Washington. And I did that for quite a few years. And then I really needed kind of a shift and I turned my attention to kids impacted by domestic violence. And that became kind of my area at the coalition. And that coincided with becoming a parent myself and really having a different point of view about, or just like a different kind of depth about that experience Mm -hmm. of what parenting is. And um, in that capacity, I did a, a lot of stuff about the child welfare system and trying to think about, um, how, CPS responses could be more um, compassionate and effective for domestic violence survivors. And, but the other thing that I did was spend a lot of time thinking about why, why parenting is so hard in domestic violence shelters, why advocates Mm -hmm. often thought that people weren't doing good parenting. And if they did think that people weren't doing good parenting, 
what were they doing about it and how were they trying to manage that and what it was like for kids to be in shelter and how that manifested in their behavior and, you know, all that whole kind of knot of questions. And so that led down a few different paths. Like one is that I started working on this project called Building Dignity to think about like, is the building that we're doing our work in actually helping people do their best parenting? And is it helping advocates do their best advocacy? And the uh, the short answer to that is no. A lot of times it's not, <laughs> you know. Um, and so we're not seeing people at their best. We're not seeing kids or parents at their best. And advocates are also very distracted. So we're not necessarily seeing them do their most effective work. The other kind of line of that was sort of related to all that was kind of taking a look at shelter rules and how shelter rules um, and policies tended to impact survivors generally, but also impact their parenting and Mm -hmm. um, how their parenting, how those rules related to parenting and how, how that whole interaction of how like trying to maintain a sense of autonomy and self-determination and ownership of people's parenting kind of brushed up against rules sometimes. And then the other thing that we started a deep dive on was just like the notion of what does it look like to proactively support parenting in shelter rather than reactively criticize parenting in shelter. Mm -hmm. So um, did kind of some work on that. And so those were kind of those are all questions that I've been thinking about for like years now and um, trying to kind of untangle and think about the best way that we can, as domestic violence programs, support survivors as they parent, not just when they're in their shelter, but also afterwards. Mm -hmm. And how can we factor that notion that and that understanding that people are parenting and how demanding that is um, into our ideas about prevention and the community work we want to do as well. So all of those things are, are the stuff that have been on my mind. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I've heard you talk about this um, as kind of shifting the common sense in the movement. Like mm-hmm. what our go-to, like how we think about it. I mean, quite literally like the metaphor of the building and um, mm-hmm. that you you started by working on. Can you talk more about if we, if we are to shift the common sense in the movement, so to speak? Right. Can you elaborate on what that shift might look like? What what could it look like? Um, yeah. Well, I think yeah. our like our usual model about how we think about particularly what goes on in in a shelter is that you have um, child advocates and the other advocates, mm-hmm. or you know, you have the advocates and then you have the child advocates. You know. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And like sometimes there's overlap or interaction, but a lot of times there's not. And I know this was very true in the communal model shelter I worked in LA years ago. And I just hear the same dynamic still from people is that the child advocates would get mad at the other advocates when um, they felt like, you know, we weren't understanding the pain a child might be in Mm -hmm. or what an inadequate job a parent was doing or you know, and then the adult advocates or whatever, the women's advocates would be like, can't you teach this lady how to do better with her kid or tell her mm-hmm, not to do mm-hmm. X or Y? Or, and um, the child advocates would be like, well, that's complicated. And, you know, so then we 
we've had different kinds of funding over the years or decades, actually, about how what kind of availability of money is there for child advocates as opposed to generalized advocates or not. And that comes and goes. But the change I think that we need to have in our mind is that everybody needs to own children's well-being in the shelter. Mm. Everybody needs to be an advocate for the children that are in the shelter, but not at odds with being an advocate for their parent, you know, and that being an advocate that you can't really separate children from their caregivers as an area of concern, because if you want children to thrive, their parents have to thrive. And I think that's like so clear when we look at like what the outcomes are, like what's the alternative, right? The alternative is to Mm -hmm. say this kid shouldn't be with this parent. And then if you look at the outcomes in the so-called child welfare scheme, you see that they are terrible. So like the alternative, there's not a viable alternative of like, let's take this kid away from this parent. Like almost any parent is probably a better bet than our current foster care system and traumatic Mm -hmm. removal. So, you know, then the thing really comes back around to like, how do we really support this parent in parenting? And then understanding that we are seeing a person in a very, like one of the hardest parts of their lives. We're not seeing their mm-hmm. full parenting capacity and we're not seeing them parent in a in a space that's good for them to parent in. So really stepping back from our kind of like judgment about all that and mm-hmm. trying to really rethink like what would create a good space for parenting and what would supporting parenting look like? And if we really care about kids, how would we be supporting parents, not just in our shelter, but before people need shelter in our prevention and community efforts, how do we support parents as parents so they can raise mm-hmm. resilient kids? And also afterwards, like how do we support people to continue parenting after violence. And I think we've done a lot of work trying to get other people and other organizations that are interacting with families like schools or psychologists or whatever to say, would you please integrate DV into what you're doing? And now Mm -hmm. I'm just like, maybe what we should be doing is just integrating healthy family into what we're doing, because it's very hard to get people to integrate DV Like we understand what that looks like and the warning signs and everything. And we also have a lot of capacity to think about what healthy families and kids and parenting looks like. So I feel like our programs could actually really be a great hub for family advocacy Mm -hmm. generally, um, which is also child advocacy, like healthy families lead to healthy kids. (laughs) Yeah, it includes the whole picture. So actually, I'd love to hear any reflections on experiences that you had either with the Washington State Coalition or supporting others around trying to do this kind of, um, it's almost like a narrative shift, like in Mm -hmm. our approach to this work. Uh, Any examples come to mind or experiences that, that you might share? Well, one of the big things really, I mean, most most programs, their center of gravity is their emergency shelter work, like not all programs. Mm-hmm. Some programs are just like advocacy programs, they don't have shelter, but for a lot of our programs, that's their center of gravity. And it informs so much of how, they, how we come to see the world and um, think of what is, what is going on for survivors. When I was looking at shelter buildings 
and talking, I went around the state and talked to survivors in shelter about how the building was working for them and what it was like to parent in this building where you're living Mm -hmm. right now. And, you know, what I heard from like survivors over and over again is like, I can't do the routines I had set up for my kid in this space. Mm -hmm. Um, It's impossible to do those routines. There's one bathtub for eight families. And we used to take a bath every night before bed. Now my kid won't go to bed. And then I get in trouble because they're up after quiet hours. So it's like this whole cascade of things. I can't, this this dining room is too loud for me to talk with my children over dinner. Um, so we can't connect. That used to be the place where we connect. I can't connect with my kids. There's no comfortable chair in this building that is free of distractions enough that my child can focus and is comfortable and has good lighting so I can read them a story. If I try to do it in the bed, on the bunk bed in the room, my back hurts and there's not good lighting. If I try to do it out in the living room, people are running around. There's no space for in this building for me to help my kid with homework where I can sit next to them at a table and be undisturbed. So I heard over and over and over again from parents about just like the stress they were under just trying to meet their kids' fundamental needs, as well as also control what their kids were exposed to or who their kids were exposed to, um, and also just supervise their kids while they were trying to do all the other parenting things or, you know, like, but, and not just the parenting things, but all the other business they're supposed to be doing, like searching for housing and whatever, doing chores. So that was a conversation we started having in Washington in the mid 2000s is like, what's it like to parent these buildings? And, and in the interim between then and now, a number of our programs have moved out of communal shelter settings and put the emphasis on individual apartments and or housing first kind of models or a combination. Wow. And mm-hmm. that was for a, a number of reasons and they're but they're intertwined. And a big one was yeah. that it is very hard to parent under the scrutiny of other people in the context of other people that aren't parenting the same way. And and advocates And all of us just realizing like, this is a really hard setup for people. And so when parents are able to control the environment that their kids are in, they have much less parenting stress, you know, and Mm -hmm. they're they're much less defensive, they're much less stressed out, and they're much more able to sit down and actually have a talk about what their kids need. And so Mm -hmm. um, like some of the programs that went to a more apartment sort of individual dwelling oriented model first of all they found out that their advocates had a ton more time for these kinds of (laughs) conversations and they could happen a lot calmer but they also found that like they could you know say to people earlier in a stay like what do you need what are your challenges with your kids how do we know if you're having trouble how will i know that you need support and have a conversation Mm -hmm. that was much more centered on the person rather than centered on like a criticism or an inadequacy, you know, so it could be more strength-based. So that's, that's been amazing to watch. And I think a lot of our, like not all the programs have been able to do that, but a number of programs in Washington have really made those shifts for a number of reasons. And it's been really transformative in the work that they've done. Yeah, that's inspiring. I'm curious, um, you know, you answered my question. I was going to ask, like, were there any surprises in this work, in this process, like any unexpected 
partners or outcomes that emerged. And in a way, you sort of alluded to that. I don't know if there's mm-hmm. any other, anything else that comes to mind? Yeah, I mean, that is a good question. I'm kind of drawing Take a your blank, time. But one of the pieces I'm working, I don't work at the coalition anymore, but I'm working with the coalition still as like a consultant. And one mm-hmm. of the things that we're doing now is really trying to make some connections, different kinds of connections with different folks out there in the community and build on some work that my colleague Lee Hoffheimer has done, which is connect with parent-child visitation programs. So like the folks that'll come out for a year or two after your baby's born, parent home yep. visitor programs. Yes. And mm-hmm. um, that kind of connecting with people who are doing something that it's not labeled DV, it's not DV oriented, but it is child well-being oriented. I think it's been really inspirational for the Washington State Coalition and for the people like for Lee doing that work in particular, but like to get out and talk with these folks that are actually out there in the community, in people's houses, talking with um, mostly mothers, but also fathers too, you know, Mm -hmm. about what their dreams and hopes are for their kids and how, like, what the developmental milestones are for their kids and what's developmentally appropriate to expect of them and et cetera. Mm -hmm. And if we want to make a big impact in our community, those are the kinds of partnerships that I would love to see domestic violence programs making more because there's a lot of actually potential allies out there working on supporting parents and, and kids But really, you know, folks that are working on that kind of model of not a model of parents are crap and I'm going to save this child, but I'm going to lift this whole family and think about their general well-being because that's what benefits kids. And there's family advocacy centers and those home visitors are just a very rich, rich place to find allies and to do some collaboration. Mm, Awesome. Yeah. So, okay, this is a final question I'm going to ask that is that I'm asking everyone. What are the two most important things that you would want to share with colleagues if they are trying to walk down this kind of path, like mm-hmm. that, that would help them as they walk this path? And you can take your time. We can. Well, I think that, I do think the domestic violence movement has some work to do um, about sort of straightening up our own house around some of the what we have come to learn about the oppressive nature of the child welfare system. And that means really on looking at our practices around mandatory reporting and understanding how our, like where not every state has advocates as mandatory reporters, but about 45 do. <laughs> Um, 42, Mm -hmm. 45, most of us, and really looking at how making those kinds of confidentiality warnings that we give to survivors, like now I have to let you know if I hear anything about child abuse, I'll have to report it, how that shuts down help seeking, how that shuts down truth telling and actually stops us from being able to do what we most want to do, which is help people where they're having the most the most problem, right? And I think that so much of our work around supporting parenting would be much more effective, easier, and more welcome if that threat weren't hanging in the air. 
And because things do not go well for domestic violence survivors in the child welfare system. I was on a webinar and we were talking about this and this this woman from a shelter, an advocate from a shelter chatted in and said, a woman showed up at our shelter with um, her kids in a cab and no car seat. And my shelter director thinks I need to report that to CPS because the children were not in a car seat. Like that was, that's, in some places, not every place, but that's how extreme this like mandatory reporting ethic is. That has nothing to do with, you know, with keeping those kids safe. Right. And so it's, so we need to really get in right relationship to that about when and how and what we do when we feel like parenting capacity is not optimal, (laughs) you know, or we have safety concerns for kids, but really thinking about effective support, not just mandatory report, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that that would take us a long way in doing really good work with families in our communities is rethinking that, um, trying to straighten that up, trying to get out from under that obligation whenever possible, which I think is doable. Um, mm-hmm. It's just going to take some work. And then, so that's one thing. And then I think that the other thing is just really, really trying to trying to normalize and destigmatize in everything we do how hard parenting is how much work it is how challenging it is how it you know places us in situations where we never thought our patience would be so short or our you know like whatever like parenting is full of surprises and and really having so much like Humility about that, but also just like normalizing that so that we're not coming from a state of like, well, some people are good parents and then deviant people are bad parents. And, you know, like those deviant people are really different than the rest of us. And the more we can kind of get clear, like all parents need support, parents need support in very local, culturally specific, empowering, destigmatized kind of spaces that the better our visioning will be about the kind of work we want to do in our communities. Mm-hmm. And um, and that DV program should own that stuff. We're great places to yeah. situate, you know, programming, not just for survivors, but for any anybody who needs help around family stuff. And then we have a great pathway into help if you're surviving DV. But otherwise, we, you know could be offering yeah. just like healthy family, healthy kid, healthy relationship kind of supports to our communities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Really focus mm-hmm. on reimagining the communities we want to mm-hmm. create as opposed to yeah. uh, what we want to tear down. Right, building, mm-hmm. build it. Build what you want to yeah. see. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Well, this was great to hear your wisdom and your thinking. Um, I'm so glad to have gotten a chance to talk with you. And I know our listeners will enjoy listening too. This is lovely. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Pivot Towards Promising Futures podcast. If you think there is work going on in your community that would add to the discussion generated by this series, please email us at thepivot at futureswithoutviolence.org. That's thepivot at futureswithoutviolence.org. Email us with information about your effort and we'll be sure to reach out to you. Special thanks to Chance Taylor for his support in editing these shorts. 
Thanks again for joining us.